Welcome to the Zen of Everything, a Zen take on life, love, laughter, and everything else. With Jundo Cohen, a real Zen master. That's me. And Kirk McElhern, that's me, a guy who knows a bit about Zen. Good evening, Jundo. How are you today? I'm happy. And trying to get happier. Really? Do you think you can become happiest? Well, you know, it's, uh, I think there's a limit on human uh, happiness, which uh, is experienced by most people in the dentist chair when they put on the laughing gas and things like that. <laughs> and it, it's actually not helpful. I don't think we can live that way. That's the trouble. And, and uh, it doesn't last very long. And then you wake up a couple hours later with a big headache. So I don't think uh, extreme happiness is uh, that good a thing. Well, if you think about it, um, have you ever had the hiccups for a long time and they just wouldn't stop? Yes, I have. Imagine if you were laughing like that and you couldn't stop. That would actually be quite frustrating. I think there is actually a, a syndrome in the world that uh, that is a case. And uh, there are such people. And it is a problem. I think you can be too happy. It's like uh, people who can't feel pain. And it's actually dangerous. Yes, because you could go and touch a hot stove without realizing that it's hot. And happily walk right off a cliff. Yes, you could. Well, not so much the cliff, but you could, let's say, tear a ligament or a tendon or something and keep going without feeling it and hurt yourself a lot more. Well, don't we actually see this? We see people that are addicted to various drugs to make them happy. And because of the addiction, they do end up... Uh, not noticing that the rest of their life is falling apart and, and harming themselves quite a bit. So happiness is happy. Let's, let's get this straight. Happiness is dangerous. <laughs> Beware of happiness. Beware of happiness. So the question today is, can Zen make us happy? Should Zen make us happy? Well, the Dalai Lama in his books uh, promises uh, happiness uh, to everyone. And, uh, I would like to, to talk about that, and I would say Zen also can make us happy, but footnote, asterisk, it depends how you define happiness. That's the big question, isn't it? And I told you before the show, I've been doing research. Um, you know, we're both from the United States, and we remember this phrase from the Declaration of Independence about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yes. And... We think about it, you know, when I was young, I used to think pursuit in the sense of chasing after. Um, mm -hmm. But then I learned that pursuit is one of those words like practice. Like when you practice law, you're not just trying it out until you get better at it. You're actually performing it. And pursuit is a similar thing. But I'm going to have a link in the show notes to uh, an article discussing case law about the phrase pursuit of happiness. Now, you being a lawyer, this is going to make you really happy to see this. Uh, I'm, am I charging you for this? I don't know. I, that would make me happy <laughs> to be paid you for, this, for this, by the way. <laughs> um, but what it comes down to is that the understanding of happiness back in the 18th century was very different from our understanding. 
If I may have one minute to just read a paragraph from the conclusion. Please. If the phrase pursuit of happiness seems empty or too general to us today, it is not because we as a people have lost the desire to pursue that which makes us happy, but because the most contemporary understanding of the word happy aligns today with what the 18th century philosophers would have called a fleeting and temporal happiness versus a real and substantial happiness. The first is a happiness rooted in disposition, circumstance, and temperament. It is a temporary feeling of psychological pleasure. The second is happiness as eudaimonia, well-being or human flourishing. It includes a sense of psychological pleasure or feeling good, but does so in a real or substantial sense. It is real in the sense that it is genuine and true. It is substantial in that it pertains to the substance or essence of what it means to be fully human. That makes a lot of sense, and uh, something I think uh, that many of us have forgotten in this day and age. And uh, frankly, uh, you know, when the Declaration of uh, Independence was written, I don't think that people were happy in the same way that people try to be happy today, because life was tough back then, in ways that uh, we have it too easy now. Oh, I don't know if we have it too easy. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, we've got global warming. You're sitting there in a, in a, I don't know, some sort of Japanese, very light um, overgarment because it's so blistering hot at 10 p.m. in Japan. I'm sitting here in my well-air-conditioned room with a pandemic with <laughs> the best of medical care and science working desperately to, to find a cure where there are people, unfortunately, very, very sick. But the mass majority of uh, the world seems to be spending their pandemic hanging out in bars and going to rock concerts. <laughs> I don't understand this plague. This is not my image of the yeah. Black Plague. I don't think they went to a lot of concerts back then in, the, in, in Italy in the, in the 15th century. I think the question of happiness, it's partly a cultural question. Um, Americans and Westerners in general tend to look more toward that fleeting dare I say, orgasmic happiness that comes and goes very quickly. How is it in Japan? Yeah. Is it different? Well, I'd say the Japanese a couple of generations back used to be pretty tough. And uh, their idea of uh, happiness uh, was, uh, I would say not happiness, was to just uh, be hardworking and to survive. And, and uh, if the crops came in in the field, there was a good rice crop that year. And uh, the town didn't burn down. It was a good year. It was a good year. Now the kids are uh, just uh, shopping and buying stuff and looking at their smartphones. They're basically like uh, young folks uh, all over the world. And I think the idea of um, toughing out life has been lost a little here. And people really are just trying to be happy. And that's, um, that's part of the downfall of Western civilization, if you ask me there. I sound like the old guy on the front lawn. You do. You do. Shouting at the clouds. Um, I've long, and obviously not when I was young, but I've long looked at contentment as more important than happiness, uh, with the understanding that happiness is temporary. Um, when I was about, I think I was about 12 years old, I got a job working on Saturdays in a Carvel ice cream store. You remember Carvel? They make the soft ice cream that comes out of the machine. Oh, sure. It made me happy when I was nine. When I started in this job, the person who ran the store, he said to me, you can have all the ice cream you want. Oh. And what do you think I did? 
I ate a lot of ice cream for a couple of days and then I got sick of it. And even most days I didn't have any of it. So what I thought at that young age was going to make me really happy, wow, unlimited ice cream, I could just open my mouth under that machine as it pours out, quickly became something that didn't make me happy anymore. I had a, a friend who was a, a rock star, uh, or had a, he was kind of a one-hit uh, wonder, and he said uh, suddenly he got everything that he wanted. He got adulation. He got groupies. He had the uh, girls uh, hanging out in his uh, dressing room uh, every night. He had uh, people coming to him every day telling him how wonderful he was. And just like the old story, just like you'd imagine, within a few months, uh, he started to believe it, and then he started to get bored with it. And uh, the rest is history. Um, my poor friend ended up with, uh, you know, uh, not the happiest uh, ending to that story. So this is what happens if we get all we want. I, I agree with you. The definition of happiness has to be multi-sided. There's meaning in life. There's acceptance and equanimity and contentment. And then there's that giddy happiness. And they're not the same thing. And I think the first two are much more important than that giddy, giddy happiness. I think the giddy happiness, as you describe it, is important to have occasionally because it's, it's the, I hate to say the icing on top of the cake, the cherry on top of the sundae or whatever, the sprinkles on top of the Carvel ice cream. It's that little bit that goes a little bit further that reminds us of what's possible. But I think understanding that we don't always want that is really important. You, you mentioned earlier about the Dalai Lama's books. And now yeah. I have a bit of experience in Tibetan Buddhism before I discovered Tree Leaf. And when I look back now, I'm amazed at how many books talk about happiness and the Dalai Lama and people around him, the art of happiness. I don't remember that being one of the big selling points of Tibetan Buddhism in general when I was looking into it, but it sort of developed as a, what would you call it, as, as a marketing strategy? That's exactly what it is. And if you look back 500 years in Tibetan Buddhism, it certainly wasn't a big uh, point of traditional Tibetan Buddhism. It's something that catered to the West when, when Tibetan Buddhism came here, and they knew what the average American suburban uh, Buddhist was looking for. Peace, contentment, and a happy life. That's, that's the secret. So what about Zen? Has Zen ever talked about happiness? Well, again, I, and I, this is the thing. The, the books on the Dalai Lama actually are a little bit, and I'm going to describe it, a, a holy bait and switch. <laughs> it's, the same, uh, it's the same wisdom it's actually a very wise message. I don't mean to put it down. Just the cover of the book is a little misleading, but then it's expedient means to get people to reading the book. And when they actually read the book, the message is much more sound. And that is the following. Happiness is not to be perpetually giddy and always getting everything you want. Real happiness is to feel a certain joy and contentment to sometimes be sad and sometimes be happy, and a certain acceptance and even, how to say, uh, embracing of life, that sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. And if you have that kind of abiding joy, not to always be joyous, then you are a wise and 
I would say, a truly happy person. You mentioned a couple of episodes ago, Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, I think it's called. Right. And that's a right. wonderful example of a very unhappy situation in concentration camps in Germany, yet finding some meaning, meaning in that, yes. not, not finding happiness, but finding meaning, which is what gives life value. Well, this is something that we can criticize capitalism, though I'm not convinced it was any better in the old days when my ancestors were peasants. I don't know what kind of self-discovery they could have. They were peasants. They were going to be born peasants. They were going to die peasants. What they had was community. They had their religion. And they found their religion in the unchanging stability of it all, living and growing with the same people. Life was tough. Yeah. Uh, my grandparents, they lost children uh, because disease was present. It was a rough life. They, but they found a certain meaning in their tradition. As you know, the, everyone's seen Fiddler on the Roof. Yes, yes. Yeah, no, seen Fiddler on the you know exactly that tradition. Right. Now we don't have these traditions. And what's happened is that we're trying to replace our traditions and our stable religious beliefs and our uh, security with a, a few very dangerous things. Number one is the shopping mall. We're trying to buy our happiness. That's not a good way to do it. Uh, running out and taking drugs or having a lot of sex because it makes us feel good for a while. Not necessarily the best way to go find your happiness. Trying to run into extreme religious or uh, political beliefs that are kind of questionable. That's a way to get angry more than happy, I think, uh, the way it's working out today. So I think we, we need to go back and really discover the contentment and meaning that we've lost a little bit. One of the problems with Buddhism is when people first discover it, they learn about the Four Noble Truths, the first one being generally translated as all life is suffering or life is full of suffering. Um, and we've discussed that in the past, the term dukkha, which is translated as suffering, doesn't really mean suffering. It means sort of things aren't going the way you want. But people look at that and they think that the fourth noble truth is going to get them out of that suffering and make them happy, whereas what it's aiming for is equanimity. Well, uh, there is the fifth noble truth that life is just a bowl of cherry. <laughs> that's, that's usually left out there. But, you know, no, the, I, I'm going to say that it's not just that the, the, the four noble truths and the, the Buddhist path is going to leave you, well, bitterly resigned and kind of uh, stiff upper lip just going to toughen out. I'm going to say, no, it's going to make you love life. I don't, I, don't, I don't think that that's wrong to say. It's not going to make you get everything you want. Sad things are going to happen to you. You're going to get sick sometimes. The people you love, they're going to get sick sometimes. The, the, your, your business and the crops in the fields is still going to go up and down like it did a thousand years ago. But there is going to be a certain Joy to be alive. What's the French expression? Joie de vivre. Joie de vivre. Joie yes. de vivre. Yes, there will be yes. something okay. like that. I'll do the French, you do the Yiddish. Um, the Yiddish expressions are all about, oh my God, we're suffering, but what can we do? <laughs> they all, that's all they do, what yeah, they translate. Oy vey, what does it mean? We're suffering, but what can we do? Yes. But this is, this is a, a finding a meaning and path in life. 
Buddhism allows us to do that, and it allows us to feel joy even when our heart is broken. And that is the thing that people don't get. You gave me several essays on happiness to read before it came today, and I looked at all of them, and none of them proposed what I want to propose to you as a key message of Zen Buddhism. Ask me what the key message is. Make me happy. What's the key message, Jundo? Very glad you asked. That you can be two things at once. You can be joyous as if in one part of your heart and brokenhearted at the same time. The only, I've discussed this before, but the image would be a Buddha's content smile as a tear is rolling down the cheek. It would be feeling grief because someone in your life has died and also a feeling of peace that you know nothing has been lost. That's the only way I can describe it. You don't have to be either happy or not happy. You can be happy to be sad. And if we had this skill, I think a lot of people in this world would be living a little bit of a healthier life. And you can be content even as you struggle. For example, people are worried that if I'm too content, civilization is going to stop. We're going to be all content. No one's going to be working to discover new things, to, to uh, keep this world moving forward. But you can be t- content even as you have a certain discontent and problems you want to solve. So, you know, Buddhists, uh, especially Zen Buddhists, discovered that you can live these two different ways. And that's, the, uh, if you ask me, a real key to happiness, as if, as if you can see life two ways at once. And uh, at least it works for me in my life. I've had some really tough times, but yet the toughest times when I was most miserable, brokenhearted, in pain in the hospital, I often was able to access at the same moment a certain contentment and joy, even, uh, what to say, a, a thrill to just be there. And it's okay. I have a neighbor. Um, he's a very happy person. He's a farmer. I don't know if you've known a lot of farmers, but farmers aren't always very happy because of yeah. just the way, as you said earlier, crops can be bad and they can have good years and bad years. And he's very happy. A few weeks ago, we had a heat wave and he was complaining. He didn't say oive, but he was kind of, oh, we need the rain. We need the rain. Then we got thunderstorms, too much rain, too much rain. Mm. And yet in all this, he manages to stay happy, probably because he's about 75 years old. He's got this continuity of decades on the land, and he knows that when things get bad, they're going to get better. Well, uh, you know, I just turned that certain age where I I understand something that uh, my grandfather once said. He said, "You, you get to a certain age where just to open your eyes in the morning, it's a gift. (laughs) <laughs> and, and actually, he, he, he put a little bluntly, I, I, we're in mixed company here on the podcast, but he'd say, and you know, when you go to the bathroom and everything works, it's another gift. And it is. You're just happy with the small things in life. You know, there was a time I was happy I got a new sports car and it made me happy for two weeks. And as the Chinese say, you know, get married, be happy for three days like that. There is a time you really? get certain things in life. I got a big promotion at work. Oh, it was my life is finally all together until four days later, I was back to feeling worse than I was before. But when you get to a certain age, there, there are statistics that show that actually older people with all their weaknesses and, and slowing down, you would think that they're less happy. But some statistics say that older people 
in their 70s and 80s are happier than people in their 20s and 30s. And I, I'm starting to believe it. Before the podcast, and this is totally coincidental, um, I listened to a podcast called No Stupid Questions. It's um, made by one of the guys who does Freakonomics that you might have heard about. It's a podcast yeah. about economics. And the topic of the this week's episode was, are you a maximizer or a satisficer? So a maximizer is someone who always tries to do things better and better. And a satisficer is someone who does things well enough. And the discussion in part was talking about how people who are satisficers tend to be happier. And also people tend to be happier as they get older and they become more satisficers as they get older. But the Zen perspective would say, you know, you could be both at once. You could be, what was the first expression? Maximizer. You could be a satisfied maximizer. And you could be a satisfied maximizer who sometimes wins and a satisfied maximizer who sometimes loses. Or you could sometimes be a maximizer and sometimes, like we do in Zazen, just sit in a corner and do nothing but sit still. There's a time to be maximizing and fighting, and there's a time to rest. But you can be content through it all. That's an interesting paradox that we say that um, in we do Zazen that's just basically sitting around and doing nothing, even though it's not doing nothing. No, it's not. It's letting everything happen and meeting it with equanimity and meeting it with uh, allowing. That's a, a very different thing. And then when we get up from the cushion of Zazen meditation and we get back into life and we encounter the winds, they're just the winds. And when we encounter the losses, they're just the losses. And like that farmer, when it rains, it just rains. When it's too much rain and our crops are washed away, part of us is, well, despondent. But part of us even says, well, that's just the way it is too. And we can live that way. Now, I know a lot of people who are maximizers and they're never happy and they don't know when to stop. And some of them get elected the president of the United States, I think. We've seen how that guy works. And, no, no, no. Uh, Let's avoid politics here. No politics. No, I, was, I wasn't talking about politics. I was talking about uh, a psychology of some driven business people. Okay. And uh, they don't know when to stop, and they're never happy. And some uh, celebrities, too. Boy, the people in Hollywood, there's a few people who seem generally happy with their life. And so many people in Hollywood who seem to be miserable and just taking drugs and buying you know, new sports cars, and they're getting divorces, and they're just never happy. They just... The, the more famous they become, the more miserable they become. That doesn't mean that poor people are happy. That's what I'm saying. We grew up in a period where consumerism was sort of reaching its apogee. Um, after World War II, we were both born, what, in the late 50s? Um, and this was when consumerism sort of took off and became an important thing. And as you say, shopping malls and the whole idea of keeping up with the Joneses. If your neighbor has a new car, you've got to get a new car. If your neighbor has um, a nice dog, you've got to get a nicer dog. But in Zen, there was no one keeping up with the Dogans, was there? Well, uh, I, you know, the, 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 some of the Buddhists were movers and shakers in their way. Dogen uh, had his plans and he built a temple. But there was a, a, how to say, don't go to excess. And that's the trouble. If we don't stop, and learn some contentment and how not to go to excess and to be, here's the expression, happy with what we have. Then, well, if we want to save the world, prevent global warming in the future, 
we have to learn that contentment and to say enough is enough and we're content with what we have. Okay, but on the flip side of that, um, some people could say that that message keeps poor people poor, suggesting that they be happy with what they have instead of trying to have more or deserving more. Well, we should also be happy to help the poor have opportunities. You know, you can you can be content and, and also build a fair society. And that's what I hope to, to see, too. Right now, I'm uh, I'm. My my cat's come over here. He want he wants a pet. He we we need that too to be happy. I think, and we need companionship. I I was thinking that my cat makes me very happy when I'm in bed. My partner and I are in bed reading in the evening, and he hops up and he wants to be scratched and all that. But then he did it at six thirty this morning and woke me up, and I wasn't so happy. But overall, in the balance, my cat is a happy character. Well, there's one more factor in being happy, I think. And that is you need to surround yourself with certain good things. And by the good things, I don't mean fancy things. I mean healthy things, good people, loving relationships. Uh, Even my little kitty cat here, it's psychologically good to have this kind of love. And if you live in a house, you could live in the greatest mansion and be miserable or you could leave, live in a small house and be happy. That doesn't mean I, I'm saying that we should allow people to live in the streets or cardboard boxes. No. We need a certain minimum of things to be happy. But once we have those things, we must learn to be content. And that's something, too, in this day and age. You know, we are the richest society in the world, and people just are feeling miserable because the guy next door has a little bit better. That's wrong. There's this tradition in Japan. I was reading uh, something about Basho, the haiku poet, over the weekend. There's this tradition of people just setting out and wandering, these itinerant poets and artists in Japan. Not so much, not necessarily giving up everything, but going into a life where they're not taking things with them. The only time we've had that in the United States that I can remember is maybe the Beats in the 50s who were hitchhiking around the country. Um, but it's not something that Westerners tend to think of, the ability to go wandering around and trust that everything will work out. It would be a good thing if people learned to do with less, uh, to live minimally and be content, to live with fewer things and content. I don't know what it would do to the economy because people wouldn't be running into get 50 pairs of shoes every week. They would be happy with the, the two pairs of shoes or even the the one pair on their feet if it was a good pair. Uh, Can we do this? Were human beings ever like that? No, I think a hundred years ago, I was just reading that people wore the same underwear for a month at a time or even longer because that's all they had. And you were happy. You had one pair of underwear, you wore it every day. Now uh, I need a drawer full. It's better than having no underwear. Well, it is, you know. And the guy, you know, that's true. You you felt a little better than the guy with no underwear. <laughs> but uh, can we learn again to be content with just enough? I think we can, but um, it's going to take uh, some differences and changes in our, our perspectives. on. But that's that's what happiness is. Contentment, finding meaning, surrounding yourself with good people, and uh, living a, a good life even when it's uh, a sad time. 
And having cats. And having cats. No, cats are vital to human happiness. <laughs> yes. Okay, Roshi, where do we go from here? Ah, the pursuit of happiness. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. Please give us a rating. Tell your friends. You can check out past episodes at our website, zen-of-everything.com. And if you want Jundo to answer your questions, send us an email at podcast at zen-of-everything.com. Thanks for listening.